sustainable fashion. Sustainable fashion. Sustainable fashion. Let's talk about sustainable fashion. No one is going to change the world by themselves, but if each person starts to make small changes, it's like a revolution. More sustainable choices for your wardrobe, for your life, and ultimately for the planet. The fashion industry in general that are really problematic, probably the biggest one is overproduction mm -hmm. and how that contributes to carbon emissions, climate change. But aside from that also, the way that the fashion industry is currently set up, it's really exploitative to the people that work within the industry. Today on The Furious Curious, we are talking about sustainable fashion. And today we are talking to Vanessa Barboni-Halleck. Vanessa is uh, the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. Another Tomorrow's mission is to create a truly sustainable and compassionate company, providing a foundational wardrobe of ethically and responsibly made clothing. They also do education and they are a platform for activism. I just wanted to, we want to thank you for, for coming on. Another Tomorrow is an, I mean, I just spent a couple hours on the website, just the, the, the magazine articles and everything was really incredible. It opened up my eyes to a lot of things that really I only knew a little bit about before. So I just want to commend you for, for making this decision to create that thing. I know it's a, it's a team effort. There's other people involved with it, but it's just cool. Like, you know your 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 journey from emerging uh, emerging markets finance to to this, which I guess is still an emerging market. We want we all want to hope so, right? So anyway, thanks for coming on. Appreciate no, it. No, uh, my absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm thrilled that you got a lot out of the site. We put a lot of time and energy into it. Yeah, it's absolutely great. I absolutely love it. And I think I think our topic today, if we could re kind of name it a little bit, would be uh, sustainable fashion. And I know we'll we'll touch upon global citizenship, environmental welfare, a lot of that stuff. But we wanted to circle around sustainable fashion, which is the mission, it seems, of of Another Tomorrow. So maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit about Another Tomorrow for starters. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Another Tomorrow for me was a bit of an accident. You know, I fell down the rabbit hole of sustainability and apparel while I was on a journey from emerging markets finance into what I thought was a career in sustainable finance. And I was just doing all this industry research and I was just blown away by how incredibly impactful the apparel industry is. And it seemed like the world's kind of biggest secret, well-kept secret. And yeah. so another tomorrow is really essentially, um, it's an end-to-end -end sustainable luxury brand. And it was positioned that way because so many people think about sustainability through the lens of fewer, better things. And there's this incredible desire to buy these pieces that last a lifetime. Um, and so that was really how we positioned it. But all the supply chains are built in a holistically sustainable and ethical way. And we really utilize best in class technology for a bunch of different use cases. But one of them is true consumer facing transparency 
and the other is owned resale. And so the way I think about it is there isn't just one path to take in sustainable fashion and another tomorrow really endeavors to demonstrate what's possible utilizing the entirety of the tool set that we have available to us to really serve women and serve the planet. The whole idea of fashion as a pathway to change, a pathway to activism, I think is a really, really powerful idea. And it gets at, you know, I, I guess clothing seems to be so fundamental. It's so fundamental to our lives. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of the, so much of that story is invisible. And I think this, it's so integrated to you know, how we live and what we do. And, but yet it seems like we really need a super fundamental shift in how we, um, how we know about clothing. And I'm, I'm speaking in very broad strokes because I want to make sure that everybody listening, whether they know a little bit or nothing about this. So we're going to kind of really talk in broad strokes here about that. But I just, I find the, you know, the cascade of effects of, of inorganic farming and um, how this collapses um, insects and all, you know, insect populations. So maybe we back up a little bit. We talked about global citizenship and I, I'm kind of curious because I think that that word gets thrown around that value gets thrown around but i think i'd love we'd love kind of your point of view on what that actually means like what are some of the pillars to be a global citizen for starters yeah absolutely absolutely you know i think that the first iteration of sustainability in anything consumer was this idea that our main means for enacting change was through what we bought right yeah. and i think that we're moving past that and there's a renewed sense of fighting for democracy and really being active citizens, certainly not just in what we buy, but in, in, in how we actually push our leaders to change. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that means not just educating yourself, but also articulating to those who have the opportunity to make regulations, um, what the expectations are on them. And so one of the ways that we do that is through our petition part of the site, right? So we basically say, okay, here are issues that we have become somewhat uniquely educated on based on our position in the industry. We're gonna package them and help you understand them. And if it's something that resonates for you, we're gonna give you a pathway to action to add your name to this and have it go to somebody who actually can make a difference. And mm. so, you know, I, I think that there are just myriad ways that one can do that. Um, and, you know, we find that it, it needs to really intersect with somebody's personal values to really get the energy behind it. Yeah, and yeah. so we just do that repeatedly, you know, and we're certainly not the only ones. Um, and I think that we, you know, are certainly inspired by what Patagonia has done through the years, but it's really this mm -hmm. idea of encouraging um, that kind of, individual responsibility and and power and voice mm -hmm. I, I i had a question about patagonia because i see you on the another tomorrow site you're wearing a patagonia jacket it looks superb i'm a big fan uh <laughs> a few years ago they had uh, a site a microsite called the footprint chronicles and what it did it sort of essentially tracked the the carbon footprint of one of their garments provided that greater transparency is that kind of a model that you're looking to emulate with another tomorrow or is it a variation of that or, or something different entirely yeah i mean the, the transparency piece for, for me is critical and so for us uh, the way that we've employed that is every garment that we make has its own unique digital identity and you can scan a qr code and you can see the entirety of the supply chain in many cases from the farm all the way up 
So the first thing that we're doing is really creating that sense of connectivity, trust, transparency, and, and education, because it also comes back to why did we make the decisions that we made? Ultimately, I think that impact measurement is really important. It's hard to do reliably right now. Um, it's very, very difficult. It's based on these life cycle analyses, which are, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're getting there in terms of that measurement process. But I think that's going to be an important part of this, especially as the world really coalesces around carbon is the defining issue or one of the yeah. defining issues of, of our time. So yes, in, in, in short, absolutely. And it's one of the ways that we use technology. What's the uh, that tipping point for, I guess, for a cultural awakening around the importance of being more choiceful and more being, you know, mindful around where the things we wear, the, our garments get made? Like, is there, is there something that you can see on the horizon that would be the absolute tipping point to make this much more mainstream? I think we're getting there. Um, the fundamental shift that I think that I've experienced or I've observed over the last year is we're kind of getting to the point where we're stopped. We've stopped arguing about what reality is. You know, we spent a yeah. really, we spent decades arguing about what reality is, which makes it very hard to focus your attention on solutions. And I think that there's been a tectonic shift over the last year. Where we've kind of stopped arguing about reality and we're starting to focus really on solutions. And once that mindset shifts, I, I, I do think that there's going to be a ton of momentum behind it. So I feel that in terms of the individual consumer urgency, it's tough, you know, when every day kind of feels okay-ish, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. And so I think a lot of it comes down to enforcing transparency and putting the information right in front of your face yeah. and making those choices feel, if not binary, then kind of close to it. So maybe tell us more about how the clothing industry at large is at odds with environmental welfare. I think there's probably some, you know, a lot of people could probably assume what that looks like, but I'm I'm curious, maybe we can go a level deeper. Like I remember, I think in the email you mentioned on how this touches agriculture, issues of deforestation, oh, yeah. water pollution, microfibers in water. I mean, this is all, a lot of this is very big revelations to me. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start at the biggest scale, which is yeah. massive overproduction. So yeah. if there's if there's one critical issue, it is massive overproduction. I mean, the production of clothing has vastly outpaced population growth. And yeah. the majority of clothing is kept for less than a year before it ends up in a landfill. So <sighs> that is Jeez. the biggest issue. And that you know obviously causes problems around how that does or does not even decompose. Um, but it also is just an incredibly resource-intensive industry. And so that just means you're utilizing way more resources than you should at the outset. So I think that's the, the biggest kind of macro level problem. Um, but then from there, if you, if you think about the environmental impacts, they, they are manyfold. And people do tend to forget that clothing is by and large an agricultural product. product. It's either made of natural materials that were farmed uh, or maybe recycled, or it's made of petroleum, <laughs> kind of, or some combination there, thereof. And so, um, so cotton is a big one. Uh, it's water thirsty, um, but it is also a huge uh, user of um, chemical pesticides and insecticides with pretty devastating impacts on biodiversity, on soil health, on human health, 
Um, so we actually have an interesting petition on our site about that. Um, so that's one big one. Um, water pollution. So textile dyeing is responsible for about 20% of um, industrial water pollution. So mm -hmm. oftentimes the wastewater is not, uh, not treated properly. Huge impacts on human health. Again, biodiversity, same, same thing. Um, microfiber. So anything that's made of um, uh, polyester sheds microfibers into the water. So um, clothing is a dominant source of microfibers in water. So that's a big one. And then there are all kinds of kind of insidious, uh, more niche issues. So one of them is actually in Mongolia. So there's been, you know, cashmere used to be this really kind of rare luxury fiber. All right, of a sudden right. it became a mass product. And so as a result of significant overgrazing of goats, basically cashmere goats in Mongolia, it's actually led to mass desertification in that country. So that's a you know fairly niche but very meaningful issue. Um, and then similarly, there are all kinds of issues around um, sheep farming, overgrazing there. I mean, you name it. So I would say there are kind of these macro level issues around kind of the, how the system works in terms of overproduction, chemicals, wastewater, overall, overall water usage. And then there are all kinds of really sort of niche issues that are very serious. Another one's actually even viscose, where you know significant deforestation just to get you know cellulosic fibers. Um, mm. So it, it's complicated, which I think mm. is part of the reason why it's challenging for consumers because there are a lot of issues. So with the winds of change blowing, the Marie Kondo's of the world, the the rise of minimalism, mm. the desire to buy fewer items but better quality items, all these seem like they're going to be tailwinds for another tomorrow. Do, do you think, do you welcome these? Do you think they're totally independent from what you're doing? Or do you, do you think they're, they're gonna be uh, helpful going forward? No, I, I think it's uh, super helpful, super, super helpful. And, and one of the things that I'm really excited about has been the attitude shift towards secondhand product. So I think mm -hmm. that is critically important. And that gets at potentials for shifts and incentive structures for businesses. So for us, we built in, resale right at the outset. So I like to think about it as like the BMW certified pre-owned cars. Oh, right. An asset, right? So sure. yeah. cars an asset, clothing's an asset. And it's super cool if as a brand, you can provide your sort of primary customer and your resale customer the same brand experience. And so the fact that people are now excited to buy both, you know, first and secondhand product, I think is a total game changer for the industry. So you combine that with the idea of buying fewer, better things in general. And I think that, you know, that really um, is, is super powerful. That's cool. So what, I, what, I, what I'm hearing is not only do we need to meet clothing demand, because that's not going to go away, but we can, we can meet that demand with uh, more sustainable solutions, but also culturally have a shift where we don't feel like we need as much. Having this this fast fashion pace uh, can yeah. slow down, and we can have less thing. We can own less, and what we do own matters. And I think, and this was right on your website. I heard, I think it was a a quote where American consumers want to feel good about things, but they don't want to pay for it. And I think that's there's a huge so there's a there's a supply chain and resource shift. That you're that working on, but also that there's this this cultural shift that needs to happen. You know, people wanting something for nothing, 
maybe finally realizing, oh, you know, actually to have something worthwhile might cost a little bit more, but guess what? Here's all the other benefits that you're paying for as well. Less microfibers in the water, less water pollution, less agricultural issues that we're talking about, things that are going to plague the next generation. It's hard to, it's hard to make that argument when you're looking at a price tag. And hopefully that's the shift that, that we're going to see. Yeah. And, and I think that there's still, you know, there's still a democratization that has to happen. Yeah. That's critical because I think that that's where, you know, the idea of sustainability, it can, can stay in this like really elitist realm. So how do you break out of that? Well, if you think about the ways that you can pay for other assets, right? Like very few people are buying a house like upfront with cash or, you know, buying a car, you know, upfront with cash. And so right. how can you start to shift the mentality to clothing as being an asset and make that accessible? And you start to think about it as like on a per wear basis, right? So instead of buying all this stuff that's going to fall apart in seven washes, which is kind of the fast fashion yeah. model, you start to think about, okay, how can you make those higher quality items more accessible to buy as an asset and then have that customer start to think about it as, oh gosh, actually that's relatively less expensive than I thought if I really think about how many times I'm gonna wear it. And you gotta to start to normalize that. So I think it's really a combination of, you know, people internalizing those externalities and caring about that, you know, future alongside just making those choices more more accessible and more palatable. Just on the topic of which, I mean, how do you ensure the ongoing relevant, if these pieces are designed to, you know, stand the test of time, how do you ensure that they are going to be, you know, I guess, I don't want to say fashion agnostic, but time agnostic, like more enduring in their relevance rather than the fast fashion model, which is very churn and burn? Yeah, no, I mean, look, that's, that's a, that's a key issue. I mean, the, certainly the intent on our end is for um, just really excellent design that is trend aware, but not uh, trendy. And so you think you'll see in the overall aesthetic that it's kind of walks this line between like masculine and feminine, that's kind of always existed for kind of decades. And so we like to think about, could you have worn this piece 20 years ago? Yes. Could you wear this piece 20 years hence? We hope, right? You don't really know. Um, but there is a sense of, you know, continued, continued relevance in, in what you're doing. So, you know, maybe next year everyone's going to hate yellow. Who knows? <laughs> but <laughs> at some point, yellow is going to be back. But in, in general, we, um, you know, we, we really do think about designing for permanence. Yeah, I think that's an interesting tension because there is, you know, fashion is so... It's so integral, or one could argue it's integral to self-expression. Totally. And people like the idea. You know, I subscribe to GQ, and it's funny, they they're even approaching this tension of, oh, we're built on this predication of more and more and more. What's the spring season? What's the summer season? Here are the new things to get. And now you're seeing more and more articles where it's like, oh yeah, like our entire business model needs to change. You know, the yeah. entire fashion how fashion speaks to the consumer needs to change. And I, I think it starts with the consumer. I think that's kind of what you're getting at is as long as we keep buying it, they'll keep making it the way they're making it at the price. So we need to start being more conscientious, it sounds like, about, okay, where are these things coming from? And I know I'm stating obvious things to you. This is more for our listeners, but you know, where are things coming from? And I think that's the huge shift I see. There's There's been a whole syndicate 
based in the fast fashion to just continue to churn and churn and churn and you get cheap materials. A lot of those materials are not organic. I was seeing like, you know, with the re- with the reduction of wool, you've seen the rise of synthetic uh, synthetic yeah. materials like polyester, uh, the fossil fuel fabrics, and that's not good either. And I and I'm I'm curious on that note. I, I I had a note here. There was this tension of vegan clothing versus organic clothing, and I know I'm getting really niche for a sec, and this is maybe more my own curiosity. But what I'm hearing from you is, you know, and from the site, really, actually, organic cotton, organic wool, whether that's the the cotton from Texas, which turns out doesn't seem to be as water thirsty as maybe some of the prevailing wisdom has been, or, you know, the, the wool source from Tasmania talked about that in your, in your magazine, on your website, it seems like organic is good. And this vegan, t- tell me more about the vegan thing. I'm, I'm really kind of curious. Yeah. What no, that, I think what it's, about. it's really interesting. And, and we walk a very fine line between those. So I, I'm yeah. aware of the tension. Yeah. So the line that we've drawn as a business is, we don't utilize anything that requires killing the animal. That's that, and okay. That actually takes out more things than you think, right? So the obvious place your mind goes is you know, animal skins, right? Yeah, so you take right. that out. But it also happens to include down and silk. Oh, okay. Um, and, and a bunch of other, you know, obviously, you know, fur and things of that nature. So it takes a lot of things out of the equation. The, the kind of the tricky bit is wool. And so we utilize wool because it is such a fantastic fiber that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are some really serious issues in the wool industry around how sheep are treated um, and also the fact that they are generally not allowed to live their entire lifespan. So there's kind of that issue. And we've addressed that largely by having farm level relationships that we feel comfortable with the the culture and the animal welfare standards but that's that's i think wool is kind of like where there is this tension point because the animal isn't killed but there are definite issues in the industry so there's that and then there are all these other natural fibers which are great i think where you get into trouble with you know vegan fashion so to speak is that a lot of it is chosen to replicate animal skins with petroleum based product uh. Right. Yeah. So that's where the issue is. So that's where the synthetics come in, into play. And right now, there's still a lot of pretty unfortunate trade-offs in, in that sort of intersection. There are some really cool things happening in material science that I think will start to solve that using things like um, mycelium, which comes from mushrooms, um, and, and algae and other cool stuff. But right now, that's where a lot of the argument lies is, is it better to use a longer lasting animal-based product or are you better off using a synthetic that comes with its own issues around chemicals and microfibers and degradation? So, Are there other sort of industries where that have made a sort of similar step change? There's been sort of an awakening around a certain, uh, I guess, ineptitude or, or, or sins of a certain industry. Uh, that has made a, a natural evolution in a way, like to take a more enlightened view. Like I'm, I'm trying to, you know, is it, is it cigarettes, is it other forms of farming? Like, I'm sorry, I'm just like sort of riffing here. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I'd love to say <laughs> that there has been. I think food in yeah. certain instances has, right? Because I think that this kind of idea of origin and farm to table and curiosity 
evolved in a really positive way. But you could also argue that there's kind of been like a bastardization of like organic farming as well. And so far as, you know, if your blueberries are showing up from Chile, you kind of have to ask yourself a couple of questions. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that we've seen huge changes. I'm curious if you've, if you've identified any yourself, but I, I do think that general awareness is, is shifting very, very, very quickly right now. At a, at a macro level, you look at, I don't, don't even want to call it greenwashing, but perhaps like brands, mm -hmm. you know, large food corporations uh, giving the impression that they are more environmentally minded and that may or may not have to appear that way uh, is, is very much, you know, table stakes these days. So I'm just wondering yeah. if there's, um, you know, it's going to affect, it's going to permeate other industries. And I imagine that this, this is something that, you know, fashion is absolutely, gonna, it's going to affect. Yeah, I really do think food is what I've always looked at first. Um, I think that there's something quite exciting actually happening in the car industry around EVs. So mm. I wouldn't say that it's happened yet, but I think that that will we will certainly see that in the next five years. Well, that's certainly interesting because you know I've, I've worked on the you know in Detroit automotive advertising and. Um, that was you know five or six years ago but you see certainly now the general motors campaign for i think that a number of evs by 2025 and their new tagline is everybody in with the ev highlighted so it's like what you said earlier it was like there's a certain tipping point where it's like there was debate and after that debate transpired now we've got consensus now there is an agreement. Yeah. Okay, what's the step forward? And uh, it's it's yeah. good to know that we're at that tipping point. We've sort of passed that tipping point, rather. I'm wondering, is there any, um, you know, what are what are some other dominoes to fall? Like you talked about, the, you know, the, the goat farming, you know, cashmere, whatever else. Are there sort of some big, big dominoes that we can push that would sort of create more of a broad cultural awakening around being more, I guess, mindful around what we wear? I think a lot of it is the information that the consumer is entitled to uh, yeah. at point of purchase. So uh, if there's one word that makes me absolutely crazy, it's imported. And so if you look at uh, what you have to put on a care content label, like a physical label on a garment, yeah. from a regulatory perspective, you've got to put a lot of information on that label. Now you go to buy that same item online, and there's very little information. And that I think, especially as a lot of purchases move online is a huge problem. It's really hard to ask a consumer to care if you're not giving them any information to engage with. And so for me, I think that there's a really important regulatory shift that needs to happen that raises the bar on the information that the consumer is entitled to. Uh, I mean, I always think about, you know, imagine that you go to buy a t-shirt and it says, um, this t-shirt is made in X country where, you know, you at least know you should start to ask some additional questions in terms of labor standards. Yeah. And on top of that, it says, and it was farmed with uh, conventional cotton that uses, you know, these five pesticides that are known carcinogens. I mean, it's a much harder pathway to click buy, right? if you have all of these disclaimers, and that's probably a little bit of a field too far. Um, but just imagine that you started to have some of that high level 
information that was required. And, and I think that the decisions that consumers would make are very, very different, but it's hard for them to do that when they're effectively in the dark. And the industry is incredibly, incredibly opaque. Sure. You know, um, that just reminds me, I think it was Billy the Kid or, or Jesse James. I think it was Jesse James. They said, why, why do you rob banks? And his line was, because that's where the money is. And as it relates to these, uh, to selling clothes, I'm wondering, is the end game for another tomorrow, is it in the Walmart? Is it in the Targets, the Macy's, you, you name it, the Amazons? I mean, I'm just wondering, I don't want to, don't give away any secrets here, but no, well, no, what's, your, what's the end game? You know, for, for us, um, we think about it as really an ecosystem of products, right? So, you know, we operate in the luxury sphere and we're predominantly direct to consumer. We have one strategic wholesale partner. Um, but really when it comes down to apparel and, and almost any product, it's, you know, the name of the game is getting the product that the customer actually wants to that person in the most efficient way possible. And so I think there are tons of things that are changing in the retail world um, that are going to make getting there super, super exciting. And then ultimately, we want to create a pathway back from that for that product to us as well in this resale side. So, you know, for us, there isn't any specific end game of, you know, we want to be in X, Y or Z specific place. We want to add value to our end customer, get our product to that customer as efficiently as possible, as responsibly as possible, and remain in its useful life for as long as it possibly can. So we talked about kind of a little bit about what what's next for another tomorrow. I'm just kind of quickly curious, uh, how'd you come up with the name? What what? I, I, um, I remember, I think I saw it mentioned in the website, but I, I'm kind of curious how, if there's a story behind the name. Yeah, no, there is a story. You know, naming is just the absolute worst. It's, it's, <laughs> sure. it's the worst. It's super painful. Um, and particularly in fashion, you know, just naming is, is terrible. And yeah. um, so really, I knew I didn't want my name on the door. I'm not the designer. And I wanted to have a, you know, life much longer than mine. Um, and I wanted it to, to mean something. And so I was actually having a conversation with one of my early mentors and she was, you know, really pushing me. Like, I was super annoyed actually that day. And she said, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And I said, because, you know, if people understood the choices that they were making and the sum total of them, they wouldn't choose them. You know, they right. don't want the tomorrow they're on track for they want another tomorrow and she said oh ah. that's the name and i said really another tomorrow it's not a very fashion name um but she was convinced that was a name and it was one of those things where um i know it was kind of a terrible analogy but like my wedding dress i you know it was the first one i tried on but i couldn't buy it for like a few weeks i couldn't really wrap my head around the fact that it was the first one. Oh, yeah. same thing with the name you know it's like that the name came up and you know i kind of stewed on it for couple of months actually before we really decided to go with it but that was you know that was a name and it's it's the truth it's you know it's really emblematic of the positive possibility for another choice love it so yeah. i guess i'm curious as to the genesis like of the whole idea itself like you mentioned i've read in this new york times article you grew up in is it grinnell iowa I mean, yeah, what yeah, and yeah. you talk, talk about the, the the nature of your your upbringing, your parents. What was it about that upbringing that you think set you on this path? That this was the itch that you had to scratch in your in your career. 
You know, I think it was a combination of so many things. You know, growing up, it was definitely this idea of conscious consumerism was like in the water. It wasn't even something that you necessarily thought about. And I think the kind of the irony is I, I think what I was probably eating in Grinnell, Iowa was less <laughs> attuned to that than, you know, maybe the concept was, but that was in the water. But really, I think beyond that, it was, you know, growing up in these small college towns where it was just a hotbed of different disciplines and ideas. And there was just this kind of idea of problem solving at the intersection of disciplines. That was also just sort of something I grew up with, you know, whole earth catalog, geodesic domes, you know, just all of these really kind of cool things. And, and I was exposed to technology uh, really, really early on when the internet was kind of in its infancy. Um, and so really started to see technology as, um, as just a tool. And, and none of that really formed in any kind of formal way. But then, you know, I, I went to college thinking I'd be an architect. I ended up obviously not an architect, um, spent 15 years in finance, which then kind of took that whole background and melded it with this understanding of global finance, global commerce, and how supply chains were built. And I think it was all just kind of latent and looking for um, looking for a path, you know, because when I was in finance, I was kind of using like half of myself and the rest of it was kind of dormant. And mm -hmm. prior to that, you could almost argue the opposite. And so it was really only when um, I saw this problem that needed this sort of interdisciplinary solution and creative solution that it all just came together kind of at once. There is that book, I believe it's called Range. I'm not sure the author, but I, I think the sub, the subtitle is, or the subhead is uh, In Praise of Deep Generalism. Now, you just described your upbringing as something, like you mentioned, geodesic domes. That's Buckminster Fuller. Is that, is that right? It, it, it almost seems like your upbringing is some, some form of like a microcosm renaissance. Do you, do you think it's that level of exposure? And I, I love the phrase that you used, I was only bringing half of myself to work. Do you think it was that innate, if perhaps subconscious desire to bring more of your ability into what you do every day that was the impetus for this? Yes, uh, w without a doubt. And, and, and part of that was, um, you know, after 15 years of just like the the hard grind and I mean that in like good and bad way your fit. I definitely felt like there were pieces of my personality that were just gone. Like I couldn't feel them anymore. You know, aspects of myself or was almost like, you know, I know it's there somewhere, but I can't touch it. I can't even access it. And so there was definitely this desire to pull myself back together first and foremost, and then figure out where I could bring all of that. And um it, you know, that, that definitely, you know, necessitated the change that, and just recognizing that the world needed a lot more people focused on purposeful endeavors. Uh, but I, I think that was a, that was a significant part of it for sure. I think you hit on something really interesting and Chaz and I've talked about it in other podcasts with other people. I think there's a point in, in anybody's life where you have a career trajectory that is great, but maybe uh, you've lost so many elements of yourself along the way and you, you continually maybe start to say, well, where's the purpose in this? And there's a point where and maybe, maybe you can resonate with this, uh, cause this happened to me, which is accolades, recognition, even money that can fuel you for a while. But at some point purpose starts driving you as you get older and maybe a little bit wiser, 
purpose starts to drive you. And I think another thing that's interesting about your story to me is we see all these things that we get better at, experiences we pick up along the way that seem to be like, oh, that's because I'm going this direction. But then when you kind of, your path changes a little bit, maybe to a less orthodox direction, a lot of those things you picked up along the way actually apply, but just in a way that you didn't really see at the time. Yes. Do, do you feel, do you feel that at all? Yeah, ab- yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, what I, what I got from my finance experience, interestingly, it was much less the detail and much yeah. more the process of actually rebuilding businesses that have been decimated in the crisis. And so it was ah. actually this like action of being more of an entrepreneur and building teams and what it meant to build teams and to actually build businesses around clients and to listen and to just configure everything around that need is really what I've brought to this more so than anything else I learned, you know, along the way. Um, so it's, it's I, that certainly resonates. That's cool. There are a couple of petitions that you referenced. I want to, yeah. I want to hear more about those. And if people can engage, you know, I think towards the end here, we want to talk about what are some of the actual tangible steps people can take. I think one of those potentially could be a petition route. Tell me about the petitions that that are kind of on your mind right now. That you yeah, mentioned. for sure. So we have yeah. two and uh, it's actually great timing because we just had a, a talk about one of them uh, today with some of our partners. So the first one is um, a petition to ban uh, the organophosphate pesticide called chlorpyrifos. And chlorpyrifos is a major issue in our country, but also in many other countries. And it's used on cotton and a wide variety of um, other agricultural crops. And the reason is, is that it just wipes out all kinds of insects. It's like, just like, you know, carpet bombing, like the, the field, it's just awful. Um, and it was banned in residential use um, quite some time ago, which tells you a lot. And it's being phased out in California, Hawaii, and New York over time. Um, It's banned in Germany and a handful of other European countries, but it is used um, extensively elsewhere. And so this is just one of those things where it's it's proven to have um, deleterious developmental effects on children, whether they're born or, or in the fetus. Um, again, all kinds of issues around biodiversity. So we just shouldn't, it's one of those things where it's just like reality check, we just need to stop using this thing. So it's like enough already. So um, that's what that petition is about. And it's just saying like, let's just use good science and make a call here and just just stop, right? So that's that's that. Um, And we got to know about this issue, again, through the cotton supply chain, right? So we only use organic cotton, but um, you know, conventional cotton certainly uses this in many instances. And so that was how we kind of came to understand this as a, as a core issue. So that's petition number one. Um, and then the second one is you know, really about an issue that astonishes me. So um, we think about Canada as being this sort of very uh, responsible country insofar as you know, the environment and social welfare is, con- is concerned. And they have one of three um, remaining um, temperate rainforests in the world, mm. in British Columbia, inland temperate temperate rainforests. And it's an incredible carbon sink. 
And there are these trees there that are, you know, akin to redwoods, you know, as, as big as your living room, as tall as a skyscraper. Wow. And um, they're being logged every day, every Jeez. day. It's, it's absolutely insane. And so uh, that forest is down, that ancient um, forest is down to uh, under 3% of its original size. Oh and gosh. they are continuing to log it. And this is at a time when, you know, we've already established that actually, you know, these incredibly biodiverse forests are, are super important carbon sinks. Like we need to be doing everything we can to protect them and grow them. And yet we're actually right. really cutting them down. Um, and uh, so this, this petition is, is to, is to halt this, right. And to basically say, okay, the forestry industry in Canada needs to move to a secondary um, uh, set of forests where basically, you know, it's uh, sustainable commercial logging, but not cutting down these primary forests that are so rich in biodiversity and sequestering carbon. And in this case, also um, the livelihoods of the indigenous uh, population, the First Nations. So, you know, it's just one of, the, it's one of those just mind boggling things where like, I can't believe this is still happening. Like, it's just nuts. Um, and uh, th this also resonates for me just in my prior life because Canada is planning on, um, on doing a green bond either this year or next year. And so I love just planting these seeds also for my former colleagues in finance so that if and when that comes to market, people know that they should be asking the questions. That's cool. Can you tell me more a little bit about a green bond? Like explain that maybe to somebody who doesn't yeah, maybe yeah, know. Sure. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. So, so basically um, green bonds, uh, and there are a bunch of different flavors of them now, but it's a mechanism whereby countries or companies, and now it's both, are borrowing money where the proceeds are explicitly supposed to go to um, projects that are positive for the environment. So let's, let's say that a company raises a billion dollars and it's because they're going to make um, all of their factories run on renewable energy, right? So they're going to completely change their energy supply. So in any case, that's what the proceeds are supposed to go to. But as you can imagine, you know, let's say that you are in the extreme case, like an oil company that's going to put solar panels on the roof of its facilities. Like you're clearly going to get a lot of questions about that. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. So that's kind of the analogy that I would use here where, you know, let's say Canada issues a green bond and the proceeds are supposed to go to something fantastic, but over there in British Columbia, they're continuing to like cut down this super carbon rich forest. That's a conversation that, you know, needs to be had. And, and luckily there is kind of some of that scrutiny, but you've got to raise the issues to the, you know, kind of to the forefront. So I'm sort of planting the seeds, so to speak, ahead of that happening. Planting the seeds, pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, kind of on the dovetail of what we were talking about before, this idea of standards. And I was thinking about organic standards. And, and as I was going through this, I, I was thinking about, you know, we've talked about food, how there's this organic label on it, but there's, as Chaz talked about, as mentioned, there's a little bit of this greenwashing that's happening. I was at Costco and it was like, to me, it was like a tragedy in just seeing the amount of clothes that were being imported with all this like hypered my awareness of like everything that's going on. But even, even in a place like Costco, seeing organic, I'm like, is there a standard here? Like, I know there's a US organic, but like, I feel like some of these words get overused as they become more palatable and attractive to consumers. And I'm wondering 
are we gonna are we gonna have to endure that iteration in fashion like we're enduring it right now in in food? And are there standards right now? I guess is is kind of my two questions. Um, first question: Are we going to have to endure this? Uh, <laughs> um, unfortunately. <laughs> it's uh yeah. it's happening yeah. right now um yeah. because there are standards but the consumer doesn't understand how to make sense of what's a good standard and what's a lousy standard right, right. and so um a perfect example of this is actually in cotton and this made me a little crazy the other day because i saw a pair of jeans that were marketed as oh sustainable denim and i thought oh i'm curious you know how are they solving for that yeah and um it turned out that the standard that they used was BCI, Better Cotton Initiative, mm. which is not great and it's not organic and it's not regenerative. But the consumer is like, oh, sustainable denim. I've heard that denim is really bad and this is sustainable. So that's good, right. right? If it had said, okay, it's organic cotton and it's GOTS, which is Global Organic Textile Standard, then I'd be like, oh, that's, that's actually kind of cool. So there are standards. Um, even the standards that exist need to get a heck of a lot better because there's a lot of transparency missing, but the consumer still has no idea how to tell one standard from another. Um, and there is an organization uh, called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition that's really trying to kind of create some harmonization around this, but um, it's hard. It's really, really hard because the supply chains are complex. And so the way I think about it is, um, you know, it's the, there's gotta be like brand trust and brands that over communicate. And that's where I really advocate consumers going. So that is that Patagonia example right. of, you know, you've got to do the, do the homework to find the brands that you can trust yeah, and kind of trust them <laughs> because right. otherwise right now in this moment, it's super, super hard unless you have a PhD to really analyze, um, the tr truth behind marketing claims. Yeah, it just seems I, I see this as sustainable clothing rises, and the and those prices reflect the true value of of what that is. We're still going to be, and I go I go back to my Costco. I just see an influx of incredibly cheap textiles and clothing that are just being. I mean, I I live I live I live in San Francisco, and I see. I see huge cargo ships come, you know, I get, I get a nice vantage point of the bay. I, I see enormous container ships coming in every single day. And I can only think it's, it's imports from other countries that don't have those standards that are flooding U.S. markets with, with goods that it conditions the U.S. consumer to think, oh, well, I can get a pair of sweatpants for 10 bucks. Like, that's easy. That's great. And I feel like that is such an easy argument because the price tag, it's like, well, nine bucks, it's easy. It's such a more intricate, difficult argument to get the a majority of the, let's just say, start with the American consumer to really think about, okay, what's actually baked into that lower cost? Yeah. And I feel like it's it's as much of a PR or a messaging, you know, Chaz and I are both in advertising, so I think about it in these terms. It's as much of a of an advertising solve than it is a supply chain solve. Is that does that? Yeah, seem right? I, I think that's I think that's very true. Um, yeah. And it, it will kind of require like a cultural movement of like what's cool and what's acceptable, right? Like, right. So first, I think the first thing I would say is uh, what gets buried in arguments around sustainability is actually the social side of the equation, right? So okay. 
Um, over 90%, and there aren't, this is, I'm going to throw out a statistic that is not perfect, but it's thought to be the case that over 90% of garment workers do not earn a living wage, right? So yeah. that is, that gets at that price point issue because it's yeah. actually fairly cheap to move from conventional cotton to organic cotton. It doesn't change the cost that much, but changing who makes it and, or how that person is paid. Yeah that's the cost driver and so there's a, a big disincentive to have that conversation and that's i think what needs a lot mm. more attention but then there's also just the cultural factor of it needs to stop being cool to be on instagram wearing a different outfit every day like right. that that has to become like really passe yeah you know because right like that's what's driving a lot of the problem yeah. We, even even last Golska season, I think there was that movement around the Joaquin Phoenixes of the yeah. world and, and a lot of the you know people who got nominations, they were like, no, I'm wearing the same outfit because yeah. that is the most economic or sort of environmentally sensible thing to do. I, I just, I, I loved, you know, it, it may be an imperfect stat, but what I did like the fact that uh, that stat communicated reminded me of the, uh, you know, food delivery ecosystem where yeah. a lot of these people are working in the gig economy they don't have benefits they're barely paid a living wage based on how hard they need to work in order to make a living like sustainable way of life is there a campaign uh for the category that needs to be around demonizing the status quo like the, yeah. the hidden costs of what you wear like mm -hmm. I, I've, you know, maybe that sounds familiar, but it seems like that that needs to take place for that, you know, cultural movement as you described it to take place. The status quo is not sustainable. It's not optimal. It's unfair. It discriminates against people, uh, and it leads to sort of a, a poor quality of life. Uh, so I'm not trying to write the brief on this, but do you think that that's sort of in the vicinity of, of what needs to happen? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I actually think that we're in a really great place to start doing that because the language is changing. I mean, I imagine, you know, 10 years ago, if we were talking about a living wage, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily understand what that was. Like mm -hmm. now we're actually having a really robust dialogue in this country about living wage which yeah. makes it so much more understandable that if that's something that we're saying, oh my gosh, we deserve a living wage, then you know, certainly shouldn't the person who made your clothing also deserve a living wage. So I think that we're starting to actually have some of this language to actually have this conversation. Um, the movement that has existed um, to date is, is called, um, who, it's who, who, made, who made my clothes, who made your clothes? And it was around fashion revolution. And it was, you know, fairly niche starting to gain steam. And it was all about that idea of like visibility that, you know, who is that actual human? But I think now to your point, like we have to have a real campaign around the facts and around like yeah. the concrete, okay, we know who made the clothes, right? But like, what is that person getting paid? You know, do they have dignified work? Um, and it's got to be mainstream. And, um, you know, I'm excited about starting to have the dialogue with some pretty forward facing people, because ultimately, like, we need a lot of people to be really vocal about this. It, it reminds me of um, a pastor. I know he in a message, he was saying, your bargain is somebody else's burden. And that, that just yes. that just stuck on me really. I love that deep. And that totally was a paradigm shift for how I view clothing and what I, what I purchase. So my, my next question is when are you going to have a men's line? Cause Chaz and I are right there. <laughs> Sign um, me up. 
Great question. Um, I've, I've been asked that before, um, and I don't have a good answer for you. I think uh, if we start, we'll probably start in knitwear. Uh, sure. So if you a sweater, let me know. Maybe you okay. can make a prototype. Sure. Um, but uh, no, we're, we're excited about that, that opportunity. It's interesting. You know, Chaz and I, have, we've touched on fashion in, in other topics, and I feel like men's fashion is a totally... I don't know if it's a less exciting prospect, you know, it, it seems to be, uh, you know, men, men are, are in general, and I'm being general here, are not as uh, ambitious or open-minded about, about different things. You know, Chaz and I are pretty variety, much- variety, I think, as well. And less variety in menswear. Yeah. I could, is, that, is, that, is that true? Less variety in general? I mean, uh, that, that is true. There's been a little bit of a renaissance the last few years, and not that this is a good thing in the context of everything we've been talking about, but- Actually, the men's wear category has outpaced growth in women's wear as men have become a little bit more comfortable with certain aspects of, I think, self-expression through clothing. Interesting. Um, and obviously that that intersects with like streetwear and things of that nature. But sure, um, it is true. In theory, it's also more sustainable, right? Because like if all of your sweaters kind of look the same, then you probably don't need to buy a whole heck of a lot of them. So, you know. Cuts cuts both ways, but uh, but yeah, it's it's surprising. There's been relatively little evolution in in menswear in this space as well. It's a it vindicates my wearing my clothes out and being criticized for um, wearing the same thing past to my to my wife's chagrin past their uh, their optimal presentable uh, <laughs> condition. So anyway, um, Chaz, did you have any uh, any more thoughts? Any more questions? No, I think I'm good. I mean, just any any. Anything we can do to help, anything you want to give a plug to yeah. Vanessa would be would be great. I would say, look, you know, there's so much on our site that is intended for people who both love the clothes and can buy the clothes and those who can't, right? So yeah. we hope you love the clothes. We hope you buy the clothes. Uh, we hope you resell the clothes. But there's also, for anyone who's curious, uh, a really in-depth sustainability section um, that should just be demystifying for anyone who has curiosity on the topic. And uh, we would love support on these two petitions and the ones that will come in the future because we think they're really super important. That's great. Yeah, we'll make sure um, we will include those petitions, not only in the show notes, but when we uh, when we advertise this episode, we'll, we'll make sure we include the petitions. Those are, uh, from what I remember, on the website as well. They yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. In the magazine section. Exactly. That's great. And speaking yeah. of the magazine for everybody, just the amount of literature and storytelling that you have on your website is incredible. And I wish I just got totally sucked in. So I encourage anybody <laughs> uh, to totally read the, the two, the, the one about wool and the one about um, cotton in particular, I think were just super insightful. Well, Vanessa, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is a, an honor and a privilege. I know you're busy and I know it's late in New York. So we appreciate you uh, carving out the time for us. All good. It was a true pleasure and, and really exciting to speak with both of you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And so from, from another, another a fellow Midwesterner, I, I appreciate it. So, yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, I feel, I feel like the third wheel here. <laughs> Iowa, Wisconsin, and then Perth. The deep south. Yeah. The deep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that's so. where the wool comes from, you know? So it's, Yeah. Well, thanks, Vanessa. Have, have a great night and uh, we'll be in touch. No, thank you both. I really appreciate it. And uh, happy to push this out there as well in our channel. So we'll just do. give me a shout. Thanks okay. Again. We'll be in touch for sure. Beautiful. Yes, thank you, you so much. Thanks so appreciate much. It. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
You're listening to The Furious Curious, hosted and produced by me, Britton Rice, and my esteemed colleague, Charlie Quark, here from San Francisco, California. Make sure you subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. That includes Spotify. That includes Apple. Uh, or wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us there. Uh, it helps others find us much more easily. And if you uh, drop a, a comment or some feedback, who knows? We may try to uh, read it on air here. We'd love some ratings, people. That's always good. It helps us get yep. found. Um, and make sure you follow us as well on Instagram at the underscore furious underscore curious and on Twitter at the FRS CRS. We welcome your comments, constructive feedback, as well as suggestions for what to do next. Until next week. Hashtag stay curious. Out. No time for